Lives of the Unconscious. Tales of Therapy. Alex, Part Three. The Night as an End. It is meanwhile the beginning of 2022. The fourth year of therapeutic work begins. For some time now, our conversations have revolved less around symptoms and more around Alex's history, his everyday life, and especially his family. Eventually, the Corona pandemic also affects our work together, sweeping over us in March 2022 with unexpected vehemence. The basic terms of our collaboration. Do not change all that much. We maintain our weekly schedule, continue to see each other in person, with a few hygiene measures. However, this new development soon has a major impact on the content of our conversations. Initially, Alex attempts to keep the topic out of our sessions entirely for a long time, not saying a single word about Corona. At some point, however, he begins to make belabored jokes about it. As if something is compelling him to talk about it, while at the same time feeling ashamed, adopting a superior, manly attitude, until I finally say, "I have the feeling that this whole situation does bother you." Although at odds with his male coolness, Alex owns up to it. Actually, he is afraid of corona, of infection. He is, after all, a smoker, or he doesn't quite know for sure. Corona might just be an excuse to. Do something else with us. When I ask him what he means by that, Alex tells me about the chat messages his family sends him, but also about the conversations with his parents, grandfather, uncle, and his younger brother. The older brother, in contrast, has long since declared the family to be lunatics. Alex even reads me some of the chat threads in our sessions. The messages involve texts and videos with menacing content. How the virus was engineered to decimate humanity, about crimes being planned or perpetrated, about poison being administered to the population, the manipulation of the news media. Some days, the family sends up to thirty or forty messages in the group chat, over and over again, virtually bombarding Alex with them. I ask Alex, "How does this make you feel?" Alex, I don't know. I'm politically neutral. I don't think much of politics. I don't know if there's anything to it. Sometimes I think they're crazy. My parents, the whole family, now they're completely going nuts. But then again, when you look at the videos, it doesn't sound good somehow, as if there's something to it. Some things need to be filtered. That's clear. But other things seem really plausible to me. Of course. I was aware of the current debates on the so-called conspiracy theories, but I did not believe that therapy is the place to discuss things politically, or to convince my analyses of my personal opinion or my assessment of the situation. My task is to understand, not to evaluate certain positions politically. I am neither a virologist nor a politician, but a psychoanalyst. But I cannot get out of these entanglements so easily. Alex brings many such thoughts and fears, news and reflections to our sessions, 
and always appears to be teetering on the edge between who or what to believe. On the one hand, he is ashamed of his supposedly crazy family, and yet, on the other, still he keeps having second thoughts. Who knows what reality really is? Who can and can't be trusted? Again and again, however, these kinds of fears weigh on Alex with increasing force, driving him once more into thinking exclusively in objective terms, insisting on clear categories, black or white. And it is I who is supposed to tell him whether this is dangerous or not, true or false. And once again, like at the beginning of therapy, I risk becoming a pseudo-doctor, a pseudo-virologist, or a know-it-all commentator, expounding like a knowing teacher on specialized topics and theories about which I actually only have a layman's knowledge. I feel myself driven towards polarization. Despite my own intentions, I find myself again and again in a position of having to express myself concretely, to choose a side between unpleasant alternatives, either conspiracy ideologue or wide-eyed follower of government decrees. There appears to be little room in between. Time and again, Alex brings concrete questions to our sessions. For instance, reading out a report discussing a secret laboratory in China and the plans of the Communist Party. The very fact that I don't or can't give a concrete answer to his questions about the truthfulness of these reports worries Alex, as if this were a sign of my insecurity or fear, and thus a sign that there could be something to it. Or I feel I'm being judgmental, as if I was declaring sheer nonsense whatever doesn't conform with the creed of some government spokesman. Or rather, like his older brother, Alex pronounces in a sudden burst of anger that the family are lunatics who should be locked up. If I don't just agree with him outright, but instead ask questions, trying to understand what this report means for him and his family, beyond just true or false, this comes across to Alex as if I was trying to get him to sympathize with his parents, undermining his attempts to differentiate himself, pushing him back into the family, leading Alex to withdraw in bewilderment. A rift is running through society, even penetrating the therapy room, impairing communication greatly. In our sessions, I strive to describe what is happening between us, give so-called analyst-centered interpretations. For example, according to the principle, now you perceive me as if I were unsure myself, or now you have the feeling that I am aligning myself with your parents. But under the pressure of fear, the conditional tense, as if, doesn't get through. During this time, it is not easy for me to adopt an understanding, nuanced approach. I have the sense that, through Alex, even the family is pressuring me to make a clear confession. What side are you on? Ours or theirs? In this way, Alex's inner reality also makes itself felt in the countertransference. It is as if he is asking, what side are you on? The family's or mine? I find it difficult to even be able to think under this pressure. I struggle to maintain a thinking under fire. Something in me would like to banish the topic from the therapy room. Something along the lines of, this has nothing to do with our therapy. Let's finally get back to talking about you, not about the effects of political decisions and laboratories in China. But that would leave Alex alone with the subject 
creating a split that it seems Alex is unconsciously inviting me to make. As in, aren't you going to send me to a psych ward after all? Send me away. Or at least the part of him he is afraid might be crazy. Irrespective of whether the messages sent to Alex are true or false, I wonder, what feelings do they trigger in him? The suggestive power of the threats gets to me too. Alex tells me that he received a chat message describing how face masks contain a toxic agent that causes serious health problems when inhaled. He thinks this is nonsense, but on the other hand, says he still won't dare to wear a mask. Alex says this while we are both wearing masks in the therapy room, and for a moment, I too feel as if I were tasting something bitter emanating from the fabric. And I then have this taste in my mouth for a full two days, until I begin to worry, is it possible that the fabric really could poison me? The fears penetrate me, but this insight also helps me to better inhabit the world of Alex and his family. I say, you want me to also feel how threatening this is for you. Alex, but you probably just shake your head and think, now he's really going crazy. He's crazy after all. But I know myself this is actually nonsense. Me, but it is so agonizing to not be quite sure what is actually true and what is not. Is society crazy or your family? Where is the danger lurking? Alex, both would be crazy. In the end, I'm the one who's crazy. Me. Being crazy means being annihilated. If society is crazy, then you might suffocate in the mask, be poisoned. But if it is you, you will be sent to the psych ward. Then I will declare you crazy. Alex. I just don't know what normal is. As Alex says this, I can feel his despair. I ask myself, what is this crazy that Alex is so terrified of? and that can also make its way into me, so that I no longer know what is normal and what is not. In another session, Alex says that his family is afraid of criminal foreigners, Turks and Mongols, as they are called in the family, but also of the authorities, of the police, of the tax office. Security exists only within the family. Against the outside world, there seems to be an almost paranoid wall protecting them. This is true quite literally. Alex tells about a kind of bunker with provisions and emergency equipment that the family is installing under the garden. Emergency power generators and so on. Although it is not entirely clear to Alex what the family is really doing down there underground. Whether they are only plans and fantasies or, according to Alex, whether something is really being dug there. He says his father has also laid out an escape plan for when it all goes down, converting the family fortune and portable valuables into gold, which are all hidden in various places and with family members. It is difficult for Alex to talk about this out of shame and fear of my judgment, but also because he is violating the family commandment, nothing may be leaked to the outside, the unspoken commandment in the family that no one is allowed to spill the beans about what is going on down there. Alex even suspects that there are weapons in the cellar, not heavy artillery, but even so not entirely harmless, pistols with blank cartridges, knives, a hunting bow, and an axe. I am frightened by this violence, whether imagined or real. For a moment, I envision being hunted by the family, after being fingered as the guilty one who is taking Alex from the family. 
The therapy room, and here again a paranoid moment in the countertransference, becomes a fortress. I wonder about whether the doors in my practice would hold if someone tried to kick them in, tried to trespass. To Alex's account, I say, So much fear in your family, a feeling that at any second disaster could strike, and they all want to be prepared for it, to be able to defend themselves. The family's fears may seem irrational from the outside, are they? Was there not once a situation in the family's history when such fears were real? Does not the confused situation surrounding the corona lockdown, the sudden government crackdown, curfews, police checks, and the fear that it has generated at least call to mind that experience? After several sessions of disarray and fumbling, I am able to form a clear thought. I say to Alex, I keep thinking about our conversation from a few months ago, about your family and the escape from Russia. I thought, isn't this like 1991, at least in your family's experience? Communist party, corrupt state structures, order disintegrating, suddenly there is chaos, no one can be trusted anymore least of all the state, fear of criminals robbing the house, neighbors suddenly becoming enemies, all that seems to be coming back now. Alex, yeah, that's exactly what my parents say. We know this all already, Alexei, they say. We know exactly what's coming. We've seen it all before. I say, and at least back then it wasn't a conspiracy theory. It was bloody reality. Bloody reality. Alex remembers a scene from the last days in Kazakhstan, when a mob of youths chased their Russian-German neighbor, a young girl, boys who just a few months earlier would have tried to steal a kiss from the same young girl. Alex watches the scene as a child from the window. Alex, they beat her bloody, and that panic, her whole body, an expression of pure panic. She thought she was dying. That's what I saw. There was no police investigation. They were happy when we left. The mayor said, hit them one more time so they disappear. And after that, his family decided to leave the country. Within two days, the family left. A city official bought their house for nothing. For days, the family was stranded at the Moscow airport without anything to eat. People just passed by, and again, an official took away their papers. They were controlled over and over, police, military. I say, that was violence, and you were helpless. Violence creates fear. Whatever supposedly reassuring or factual things a spokesman on the daily news says. In your family, and also in you, lives the experience that you can't rely on anyone. No protection, except that which you give yourself. The topic of family history gradually brings more structure back into our sessions. Alex can relate to what we talk about. The family's history becomes the basis of our mutual understanding, something that really happened, beyond the question of what is or is not true about corona. This diminishes Alex's fear. The diffuse fear is not simply irrational and crazy, but has a place in the family's history, is grounded in certain experiences which is not to say that uncertainty with respect to the real situation of corona is not warranted. Alex's urge to know is awakened. He wants to know more about his family history and to understand more about his psychological suffering. 
he begins to ask questions to his family and his relatives, and comes to learn about the family's history back through the generations, and soon this becomes an important key in the therapy. Alex takes the time to explore his family history in more detail. He talks a lot with his paternal grandfather in particular. His grandpa, Mikhail, is the last surviving family member from that generation. It's funny, Alex says. He's always talked about the past, but back then, I was never really interested. They were just stories. But now he has all ears and asks different questions, even of his parents. How did we even get to Kazakhstan in the first place? How did you grow up? To Alex's surprise, his parents and grandpa are happy to provide information. Alex also calls relatives from their native land to flesh out his grandpa and parents' narrative. Alex learns that both the maternal and paternal lines are deeply woven into the history of violence in the 20th century, the age of extremes, the marks and wounds that his family still bear today. He speaks about the family's experiences in the Second World War, which the family witnessed firsthand in different places in the European part of the Soviet Union, where their grandparents were originally born. On both the paternal and maternal sides, the family was torn between the fronts, alternately finding themselves on the side of the perpetrators and the victims. Apparently, there were even relatives who took part when the German occupiers murdered partisans and Jews, though this incident remains obscure. The family was considered German, which one day made them into the master race, and the next day into the persecuted. Still during the war, after the Russian reconquest, Family members were deported to labor camps in Siberia under disastrous conditions. The relatives starved to death, died of disease or from exhaustion. Many of the men in the family died in the war or remained missing. There was no reunion. While listening, I couldn't quite sort out the events myself, despite asking questions. Which part of the family disappeared? Where were they deported? Who survived and how? Who died and where? It all hardly seemed to add up, but perhaps that wasn't the most important thing. Instead, the overriding impression was that Alex's grandparents, then still children or in early puberty, grew up in an inferno. Children were separated from their parents. Suffering and dying were part of everyday life. Mothers were helpless. Fathers and brothers disappeared. There was hunger and hardly any medical care. It is this experience in the Siberian labor camp that festers most of all in the family. This is the environment in which the grandparents grew up and where the family members had to stay for years. It seemed to me that the camp was the very nucleus of that historical experience casting its shadow onto Alex's soul, a real experience and an allegory of the soul all in one. I say, the camp as the place of absolute powerlessness of being at the mercy of others, of arbitrariness. I imagine to myself, nothing is predictable. Violence is present in all relationships, can strike out of nowhere, regardless of whether one has done something or not. It is in the unpredictability of violence, the arbitrariness of rules, that the regime of terror in the camp is grounded. Alex learns in a story from his grandpa that he and other prisoners were often afraid to eat. A rumor was circulating that the camp administration was mixing poison into the food to test as a biological weapon. 
That was why so many had died of diarrhea. But you still have to eat. Set in the context of the camp, this rumor does not sound at all like a conspiracy theory, but a real threat. In a sense, the very archetype of the secret laboratory in China, from which the vast human experiment with corona is supposed to have come. Moreover, the camp also turns victims into perpetrators, setting the conditions in which one has to trample over others in order not to be trampled oneself, has to steal food and boots from others so as not to freeze to death and starve, and as a consequence, leaving the others to freeze to death or starve. The great-grandmother had discovered a small and clean food source in the camp and had been able to snatch something for herself, regularly giving her children and the grandfather some potatoes. When a boy from another family begged for something to eat, the grandfather, Mikhail, who at that time was about the same age, hid his bread. The grandfather believes that the boy died of starvation a little later, Alex said. And across that time, I can still feel the burning, helpless sense of guilt, hardened into emotional callousness and fatalism. The whole family story feels to me like a dream Alex had at the beginning of analysis, something vague, fire, blood, and violence, in which all shapes merge. No one can be sure that what provides security today will not lead to a deadly fate tomorrow, in which it is unclear who is perpetrator and who is victim. Safety is nowhere.
Alex's parents grew up in friendlier places, in Kazakhstan on a collective farm, where families were taken to after the end of Stalinism, where his grandparents and later his parents met. With dedication and cleverness, the families managed to establish themselves, and finally, Alex's parents were even able to pursue an education. Both became teachers and were no longer directly affected by brutal oppression. But the horror of previous generations had been inscribed into family relationships and early experiences. Alex's parents recounted their harsh, emotionally distant parents, who were prone to explosive outbursts, often using violence. In fact, it was the traumatized parents who passed on the generational trauma. Eventually, indeed, even on to Alex's generation, who in turn experienced violence and harshness from his parents in childhood, unpredictable shifts and moments of arbitrariness. The sudden disruption of their life story after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s rekindled those fears, evoking the family trauma. In this way, even the alarmist, supposedly crazy reaction to the current social crisis, corona, also takes on a different meaning for me. The question of being normal also appears to me in a new light, normal and not normal. In their family story, that is a question of life and death. I say, in the history of your family, normality was quite often crazy, a crazy normal. But even the tragic side of Alex's cultural identity now takes on a new shape. His origin is not something that belongs to him, that he can be proud of, that is part of his identity and history, but rather something that has to be gotten rid of. To have something special about oneself, to stand out, in this sense, to be different, abnormal, that is connected with the danger of exclusion, the threat of betrayal, and the most extreme circumstances of the family's history, deportations and camps, and the last instance, death. He erases that part of himself in order not to be persecuted, but in so doing, reenacts that very erasure, the betrayal, the deportation of the unwanted self into the cellar. In order to avoid becoming a victim, he becomes a perpetrator, but also a perpetrator of his own self, of his own history and identity. I say, but the fact that you are asking questions, that you look into your history, that is already a protest against forgetting, against the silencing and erasure of that which is not permitted to live, because you feel what is part of you is something valuable, that it should live. For Alex, speaking is like liberation. He talks about his associations in increasingly clear terms and understands not only with his head, but also with his heart. Of course, therapy also deals with other topics than family history. But the discovery that he has this kind of history at all, that it is somehow related to him, plays an immensely important role for Alex. Again and again, he comes back to it, talks about his discoveries, makes them his own. Nor is it the case that Alex has been completely released from his fears, nor from his family entanglements. But for the first time, it seems he can grasp the incomprehensible, give it a name. I think to myself, the night has an end. Alex is finding his words. It seems that this history is a key to Alex's experiences in the family, a family that has tried, as if in panic, 
to protect itself against the repetition of the trauma, thereby, however, repeating that violence in the process. Outwardly, through a forced and thus violent assimilation to social norms, under which the children must suffer, math, sports, and beatings, and inwardly by erecting barbed wire around one's own family, punishing every deviation, fighting off everything new, foreign, or unknown, in an attempt to protect oneself from the world. However, the family's barbed wire becomes a prison in which they are held. Unconsciously, it has become a camp where some degree of arbitrariness reigns and also always panic, fear, sudden outbreaks of aggression and violence. With this in mind, I say, in your family, time has not moved on. For your family, it is still 1941, in war, 1944, in the camp, 1999, in Kazakhstan, day after day. The family is an example of the timelessness of trauma, split off From a functional exterior, violence is omnipresent in the family's unconscious. The trauma itself, however, still haunts their history like an impenetrable ghost, a specter of fear that can adopt many masks, criminals, foreigners, government, police, psychiatry, disease, laboratory. In the family, there is a tremendous propensity for fear, most likely handed down already in early attachment relationships. I imagine what it was like for Alex's grandparents and parents when one of their children was afraid, sick, or hungry, screaming. Wouldn't this kind of situation itself trigger an inner panic? Unprocessed emotions like illness, death, fear, feelings that make it difficult to calm a child because they themselves were not at all calm? Maybe this is why Alex was not able to learn that there is someone else who can accept his feelings, who does not begin to panic when Alex himself is in panic. The parallel in the transference-countertransference situation of therapy would be, I begin to fear being poisoned when Alex tells me about his own fears of poisoning. I too go crazy when he brings his thoughts to our sessions, no longer know anymore what is normal and what is not. I imagine parents who always have to guard themselves against contact with trauma, who cannot stand crying, childish fears and fantasies, and therefore respond to the child with exceptional coldness, harshness, ruthfulness, in precisely those moments when the child is helpless. Here is precisely where the emotional reality of trauma is handed on. A child is powerless, cries, is afraid, but no one helps. No one comes. No one opens themselves up to their feelings. Here, my negative countertransference reaction in therapy would be to distance myself from his fears, to try to explain them rationally, or to dismiss them as meaningless, but most of all to seal off my innermost self to him. This, too, was a reoccurring danger in treatment. For a long time, These were the poles between which our therapeutic interactions oscillated, between being overwhelmed by his feelings on the one hand and warding off his feelings on the other. This unarticulated experience in which Alex can reach me with his fears, to even infect me with them to some extent, while I nevertheless remain emotionally accessible to him, therein lies perhaps the defining moment in our relationship. I offer the interpretation 
You are so afraid of what this will do to me if you bring your feelings in here. Alex responds, and for me, this sentence is as honest as it is meaningful. I feel you understand me. Alex's family history provides us with a crucial key to his long, inexplicable symptoms, a historical foundation that finally makes comprehensible the full extent of the impending inner inferno, his diffuse fears of being suddenly overwhelmed. Aren't Alex's panic attacks somehow also a cry of fear that does not subside over the generations because nobody is there to hear it, take it up, transform it? I say, all this, your story, is also in you. The abrupt escape, looking frantically to see if danger is lurking somewhere. As if the story goes on inside you, replaying itself over and over again, renewed in every panic attack. Of crucial importance are the emotional consequences, the unconscious psychology, so to speak, that originated in the trauma and is passed down in the family. Getting into contact with one's own feelings is threatening, leads to panic, breakdown. Once this box is opened, there is no closing it again. In this context, I offer the interpretation, the guiding principle for your family, and ultimately for yourself, is, feelings are dangerous. Alex. Or the sentence, feelings make you weak. Me. And being weak means, in the final analysis, not surviving. Whoever mourns their lost childhood, whoever shows fear in their eyes, whoever feels compassion or guilt for others, he becomes weak. He will not survive, not in the camp, not in 1991, and also not here in school, at the office, in a relationship with someone else. This, perhaps, is the crux of Alex's basic difficulty in making connections. It is not just a deficit, a weakness in mentalizing and the alpha function, but ultimately a survival strategy. Feelings are dangerous. They make you weak. So you cannot feel. You must not think. Relating thoughts and feelings is like mixing explosive agents together. And I say, and I brought you into contact with feelings. And I think to myself, how threatening it must have been for Alex to expose himself to me even at his weakest, to let me touch him where he is most vulnerable. He did not reveal himself to me completely. He hardly ever lost his composure, for example, hardly shed a tear in therapy. But isn't that also understandable? Is that not his right? To my surprise, Alex responds to my remark but I am still alive. And perhaps this gets to the secret at the heart of our analytic work, cautiously drawing near to his story, but also keeping a safe distance without taking this away from him. One can know, think, feel without being destroyed. One can even expose oneself without being overwhelmed, destroyed, or sent away, without a bomb exploding and bringing everything crashing down. This process was only possible through caution, not quickly and violently, but through a slow, incremental approach that took years. But it is only through this experience that the sentence, it is no longer 1944 or 1991, can have any emotional truth for Alex. 
it still takes quite a while for these experiences to solidify. Our conversations about his family history, but also about what it means for our work. At the end of 2020, coverage through statutory health care is coming to an end. We are considering if or in what way therapy could continue. Certainly, there are still some issues Alex has not yet addressed. He may still tend towards anxiety, maybe even towards psychosomatic symptoms, but he no longer suffers from violent anxiety attacks, no longer visits doctors constantly. His inner world is on the whole perhaps less characterized by horror and terror. The question of whether he wants to start a family with his girlfriend is open to him. He has not quite found a role with which he can reconcile himself, even in terms of his masculinity. But through therapy, a door has opened for him. A family of his own perhaps no longer means perpetuating the barbed wire. He can distance himself better from his parents and no longer get so easily caught up in their panic. Maybe Alex will be able to go back to analysis at some point, but I have the feeling that it is good for him now to take the next steps on his own. We have done a good bit of work that he can now build on. It seems that this is also what Alex wants, would like a little more time for spending with his girlfriend or as free time, but he is also worried that he will have to lose me completely. The analysis has been something very valuable in his life. The thought that he may never see me again makes him sad. We reduce the hours a bit at first, and in the following spring, the therapy finally ends. However, we agree not to make an abrupt cut, but rather a mild transition. For a while, we continue to see each other every quarter to check in on how things are going, and in this way, we stay in touch.